We must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support, and now for the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. My name is Brandon Pollan, and I'm one of your co-hosts, and I'm joined by my fellow co-host, Dr. Stephanie Ryrock, and unfortunately, F. Scott was unable to join us this evening for tonight's episode. And the focus of discussion for this episode is vision, and specifically avenues of vision rehabilitation. And, and with that, I'd like to welcome... Jeremiah Jorgensen and Dr. William Padula on the show today for a discussion into the realm of vision rehabilitation to really discuss this aspect from a clinical perspective and from an educative perspective. So gentlemen, do you think you could kind of both describe a little bit about your backgrounds, kind of how you guys got to where you are today and kind of what you're doing now, starting with you, Dr. Padula? Certainly be happy to. I'm an optometrist. I'm a researcher and a clinician. And um, I am the director of the Padula Institute of Vision Rehabilitation in Guilford, Connecticut, where we see people from all over the world who come to the Institute for help with vision problems related to a neurological event. But I became involved in this, Brandon, um, probably 35, 40 years ago when I started working in Connecticut and I opened up the first uh, not for profit low vision clinic in the state. And When I opened the clinic up, it was for the purpose of working with people that had a vision impairment. And I opened it up unusually in a uh, Easter Seal Rehabilitation Center. So rather than seeing people with macular degeneration, glaucoma, and other types of vision impairments, I started to see patients with neurological problems like strokes, traumatic brain injury, cerebral palsy, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, just to name several. And... I remember after the first day, I walked into my uh, case manager and I said, what are you trying to do to us? This is a low vision clinic. Why are we seeing so many neurological problems? And she said, you should have thought about that before you opened up at an Easter Seal Rehabilitation Center. And for the next six months, I had no clue as to what to do with those patients. And I did a full literature review and the literature was absolutely void of how vision problems develop and what need to be done to help people with a neurological event. So I dug very deeply into my background, search research that had been passed over in the 20th century by some of the most famous researchers, and started to uncover um, both research as well as listening to patients guiding me in terms of their visual processing problems, began to uncover what was really occurring. And it led me down this pathway of doing research as well as recognizing that their problems were not one of eyes or eye muscles, 
but one of neurovisual processing dysfunction. So that's what led me to this journey, and it uh, allowed me to discover several syndromes and to develop new methods and approaches to help individuals with these type of problems. I was the founding president for the Neurooptometric Rehabilitation Association, and now there are doctors that are beginning to learn this area of care uh, within the United States, Canada, Mexico, and throughout the world. My background as a PT started 15 years ago. Started outpatient orthopedics, actually doing wound care. Initially took a job in Northwest Arizona, and as a result of that, treated virtually everything from amputee, stroke, a lot of outpatient orthopedic, and then wound care in the hospital. Fast forward 12 years after that and had the opportunity to work on our own outpatient orthopedic clinic that my wife and I started. Was doing quite well treating all of the patients that were coming in traumatic brain injury, stroke, motor vehicle, whiplash injury. And we had a couple patients that during that time frame, we started to scratch our heads and say, you know, we've been outpatient orthopedic PTs for a long time. We'd been treating with functional dry needling, getting great results. And my wife and I looked at each other and said, you know, something has to change because we've got some really good results in the past. And all of a sudden we have patients coming in that we're not able to create as big of a change as we would like. Little did we know that Dr. James Nedro lives in Lincoln, Nebraska, was trained by all of the processes that now Dr. Padula trains other optometrists on, and we were able to meet him because we had a mutual referral from a patient, struck up conversation with him, and now fast forward to where we are today, and we've been treating in our clinic with the platform of understanding what happens in the vision world completely different than what we thought we knew, which was vestibular coming out of physical therapy school. We still treat traumatic brain injury, stroke, concussion patients that come in, chronic headache patients, but we see them in a completely different light now. Um, there's a protocol and a screening kind of environment that can be used for the physical therapy world that helps us not diagnose because that's what Dr. Padula and them do, but to get a different understanding instead of what we traditionally treat as vestibular. And as a result of that, in the past five years, I can say we've probably treated one true vestibular patient that was referred to our office with a vestibular problem. When most of those patients are referred as vestibular, we work them up and as a result end up finding out that they have far more going on than just true vestibular. And it's a visual vestibular somatosensory dysfunction, if that makes sense. That's really, that's really interesting, Jeremiah. You know, we have an audience that has a variable backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Most of them are healthcare providers, but we also have some students. We have educators, some clinicians. And you had mentioned that you had a lot of patients that come into your clinic and, you know, they'd be referred for vestibular rehab, but you have, when you work them up, it's not necessarily the case. So can you give us a little bit of context as to what exactly vision rehabilitation consists of and what it's used to treat? Sure. I think the best avenue for that platform, and then we can give what the clinical site is as PT, would be to let Dr. Padula condense down everything that they do because it's very detailed that literally you could have two hours going over the detail behind the scenes in the neuroanatomy. So I will spin it to him and let him give you the nuts and bolts of what's truly going on, and then fill in what we do on the physical therapy side, if that works. Sure, I'd be glad to pick up this uh, point. 
in order to really understand what Jeremiah is saying about the fact that the majority of these patients probably are not true vestibular dysfunction patients, you need to look at it from a different perspective as well as review the research about vision. And there, if you go back to the 20th century, there was some amazing research by some of the top visual scientists in the world. They were all pointing to and saying the exact same thing, that there wasn't one, but there are, are actually two visual processing systems. Yet we still, in optometry and ophthalmology, medicine, nursing, PT, OT, all the professions, still deal with it as if it's a one system, the eyes and information going back up to the seeing part of the brain. So it would help if I could just take a moment and describe the fact that the conscious part of your visual process, that which occupies our minds most of the day, is only one component, but a very important component of the visual process. But it's not the first one that we're all born with. And the first one that we're all born with is a spatial visual process. It's part of the visual process that you don't see in, but it provides information to match up with in information coming in from the sensory motor system, particularly the proprioceptive base of support. The spatial visual process begins not in the occipital cortex, but down in midbrain, where information comes from the peripheral vision of both eyes and drops down to midbrain to match up with what's coming in from the proprioceptive base of support. And proprioception can be from the muscles and joints of the legs, the pelvis, the trunk, but particularly the cervical area. Yeah. And in childhood development, the visual process is organized this way so that the child gets to organize the relationship of the spatial visual process with proprioception to gain orientation to be upright against gravity. So the spatial visual process, unlike the conscious, focal, or higher attentive visual process, is gravity-specific. And that's a term that you probably never thought of before in relationship to vision, but it's very, very true. The spatial process has to link up to expand its orientation with proprioception to give the brain organization of processing potential upright posturing vertical to the horizontal plane and upright against gravity. And it feeds forward from midbrain up to mapping stages in the frontal lobe, the parietal lobe, and the occipital lobe, where these mapping stages act as the platform base for the higher visual process, as well as a grounding source for all other senses. Essentially, what we're saying is, if you're going to have Thanksgiving dinner, make sure you set up the table before you put the turkey and the dishes out. Because what happens here is that once you have a traumatic brain injury, a Parkinson's disease, concussion, um, any type of neurological event, whether it's congenital or adventitious, there's a compromise of the spatial visual process, and it leaves information to go to the higher portions of the visual process for context, identification, and detail before going to the spatial process. When that happens, the higher part of the visual process takes over, and instead of accepting information from a bottoms-up or bottom forward, feed forward component, it tries to drive the system from a top-down orientation. And this completely fragments all aspects of sensory function. And I'm not just saying vision. It fragments every part of the sensory 
information coming into the brain. What do I mean by that? The spatial process creates relationships so that you can attend to what you're looking at and not be bothered by movement or information coming in from your peripheral vision about details. So you might be in a room right now where there's other noises in the background or other things happening visually, but you're able to attend and look past that by focalizing on what you look at and let the rest blend into space. When you have a disruption to that spatial visual process, the focal visual process or the higher attentive process takes over and all it knows how to do is to look at detail and every aspect of your visual process will become detail. And this extends over to all other senses, including audition. So that may sound kind of strange, but we've probably all had that experience, or at least most of us have had the experience of what this is like. Think of what it's like. Have you ever been in a situation where you're driving in a snowstorm? Probably. Have you ever driven in a snowstorm at night and by mistake hitting your high beams? Well, you know, a moment before you hit the high beams, you were able to look through the snowstorm and you're able to see the road. But the moment you hit the high beams, now you've got a meteor barrage of snowflakes and the whole visual world becomes detail and it's very difficult to see the road that was there a moment ago. And if you know what that feels like after 10 minutes of driving and you get out of your car, you go into the house and you sit in your easy chair and you think, boy, I'm glad that's over with. Well, a person with a TBI concussion or other types of neurological events can't do that. Their world is living that experience every waking moment of their day. This is what I learned from my patients, and I did research using visual evoked potentials in traumatic brain injury patients. And that paper was published in 1994 in Brain Injury, a well-known medical neurological research journal out of London, England. What we found there is that we had an experimental group of TBI patients and a control group of non-head uh, injured patients. When we did visual evoke potentials, we found that the height of the wave where the amplitude was compressed for the experimental group compared to the control group. But when we treated a spatial potential spatial visual processing dysfunction with prisms for both the control and the experimental group, what we got was an increase in the amplitude for the experimental group, proving that it was a spatial visual process and that the prisms were going to be effective in reestablishing that component of the spatial visual process. And it also demonstrated a compression on the control group that had a normal visual processing system. So it meant that if you used prisms on a normal spatial visual processing function, it was going to counter the effect of what normality was. It allowed us to prove that all the characteristics that we see following head injury, like convergence problems, tracking problems, saccadic eye movement problems or quick eye movements, symptoms that they get with light sensitivity, uh, problems in being in busy, crowded environments, those were all symptoms and characteristics, not causes. Mm -hmm. That the main issue was a spatial visual processing problem, for which when we treated the spatial visual processing dysfunction with prisms, we not only got the changes in the brain waves, but within a few minutes, days, hours, or a week or two, the symptoms began to diminish. So what uh, I'm trying to bring out from this is that oftentimes patients with these type of neurological problems go to eye doctors because they're having problems. And the doctors will say one of two things. Either they have 20-20 acuity and their eyes are healthy and go on, get on with their life, or they'll start to diagnose characteristics 
like a convergence problem or a focusing problem, difficulty with tracking or quick eye movement. And they'll say, well, you have a muscle problem, let's treat it. What our research discovered is that it's not a fixation problem. It's not a convergence problem or an accommodated problem. It's a spatial visual processing dysfunction that shows up characteristics in what I've just said. And we've proven over and over again that if you treat the spatial visual processing dysfunction with a low amount of base in prism, within a few days to a few weeks, most of those convergence and accommodative problems will go away by themselves without having to employ the patient in a vision therapy program that might last six months to a year and get very limited results, if not embedding the problem because they're overworking focus, fixation, and isolation on detail. Now what I can, and you can feel free to ask questions, and then after that I'll fill in what that patient looks like then when they come in tra to traditional outpatient orthopedic PT, or even if they're coming in on a neuroscience. So go ahead, whatever questions you have. Yeah, I have a few follow-up questions for you, Dr. Padula. So just so that I'm, I'm clear in what you were saying, it sounds like that when you treat the spatial visual processing dysfunction, that is what is fixing the problem. You don't necessarily combine the focal and the spatial visual processing problem together. Is that correct? Well, it's well said. Um, so there are two processes called the bimodal visual process. What gets compromised in the majority of situations is the spatial visual process. Mm -hmm. This cannot be fixed, but what it can be done is rehabilitated. And when you rehabilitate the individual by using the prisms, you bring balance into utilizing both the spatial process as the platform base, and then that re-engages the focal process to disassociate from the spatial visual process. Okay, and then you've, you've been describing these prisms. Can you just maybe expand a little bit on that and explain a little bit what you mean by prisms? Are they just regular prisms that you can buy in a store? Are these like specialized devices that you've, that you've uh, invented or that um, or is a medical device? Well, a prism is a wedge of glass or plastic or optical media, and it, be, it can be ground right into a pair of glasses, and that's how it's usually used. The best way to use it is to grind it into the lenses so that the person uses it full-time, and it really is cosmetically uh, no different than wearing a pair of glasses. What occurs when there's uh, a collapse or compromise of the spatial process, the focal process takes over. And if I could use a description of that, if you can think of a donut, if you went into a donut store to buy a donut and the salesperson handed you a very thin donut with a giant air hole and then said, that'll be $2, you'd say, well, I'm not going to pay that. You wouldn't be buying a big, big air hole. After a concussion or a neurological event, when the spatial process gets compromised, the focal process expands. That's the air hole spatial process in the periphery compresses. What I learned in, from optometry is that a prism both expands and compresses light. And I utilized it early on when I was beginning to work with these patients that were describing some rather bizarre symptoms and showing these characteristics. I positioned it in such a way so that it compressed central vision and expanded periphery. Essentially, it shrunk the air hole of the donut and expanded the donut itself. And when I did that, they immediately responded by the fact that they would have a reduction in symptoms. They weren't as bothered by light sensitivity. They could tolerate busy, crowded environments. Mm -hmm. They became 
getting more comfortable immediately. So PRISM is something that can be prescribed. It shouldn't be used generically. And there is license in the United States, and I believe every state, for the prescription and use of PRISMs as well as lenses. Wow, no, that's really interesting to kind of hear that perspective on that, because personally, I didn't realize the different avenues of vision, especially from that spatial visual processing and how really that can sometimes be kind of the underlying factor rather than the other focal points. So I think that's really interesting to hear from someone who sees some um, some vestibular and concussion stuff here and there. But, you know, Jeremiah, I'm kind of curious, you know, really kind of going now into the physical therapy realm, what is this person, an individual who has kind of more of this, whether it be focal that was separate or kind of a combined focal due to a visual spatial processing problem. What do they look like in rehab and kind of what are some of the things that are really characteristic that you guys work on to help that? Yeah, great question. So if you think about it, traditional and physical therapy, you know, we're going to be checking what is this person's balance. Everything in the Medicare world now and functional reporting is fall risk, balance, whether it's Berg, Tenetti, all of this stuff. Well, that's great, but if you understand now what's going on behind the scenes from a visual processing standpoint, the patients that we see if they've had a stroke or traumatic brain injury or even significant whiplash or concussion, you'll see head is tipped a little bit or they're posturing and standing different. Well, the challenge we have in the physical therapy realm is as we give a patient exercise, no matter what that exercise is, until this process is corrected, they will improve while they're in physical therapy. And as soon as you start to let that back off because they've been in therapy, say you treat them for six weeks and initially their balance was poor and now they're safe with movement activity. Once you let them go back to normal life, a lot of these patients will tell you, well, my balance disorder, the stiffness in my neck came back after a car accident. Or since you started treating me and working on my neck with manual stuff or did dry needling, now the neck pain and headaches are worse. As a result, because your structural system is guarding if it's related to orthopedic in the neck, which we talked about before, but beyond that, the process of literally from the ground up on how the body compensates, the patient will improve with normal vestibular rehab and structural strengthening, but because you haven't corrected the problem, as soon as we remove our intervention, everything that was still normal and dysfunctional in this patient will come back to the surface versus when you treat this from the get-go. 75% or more of the soft tissue restrictions and dysfunctions that we would treat in outpatient orthopedics are gone as soon as this dysfunction is treated. So the soft tissue work you'll need to do, the joint mobilizations, the amount of functional dry needling, ASTEM, anything from the modalities that we traditionally treat, it literally is gone and then you can get into exercise. So the patient that you're having trouble figuring out why, you know, why is balance still an issue or this neck isn't getting better and a lot of your motor vehicle patients are thrown into that bank of, you know what, they just aren't getting better. It's been a year and they're hanging on. It's because of this dysfunction. And once you treat it, you will start to see that active range of motion comes around and we don't even have to treat it with hands-on in the physical therapy realm because of that. Or balance activity when you do it, you can actually progress this patient far quicker than where you thought you could. Well, that's really interesting. And you know, Kind of from a clinician perspective here, just to, I know you kind of really explained on kind of why it's important to address that. Do you think you can kind of give us some ideas of kind of some interventions to just, you know, a day in the life in the, as a clinician with you primarily treating this, what are some of the big ways that you actually implement this with a patient in the physical therapy setting to address that? After we know that that's what's present, and if there's somebody that either has had their prism or we're waiting in because they're going to be seeing Dr. Nedro and get their prism, 
those are two different animals because we know that if it's they're still in waiting and need to get seen by their office, we're cautious and in our clinical practice, we aren't pushing balance or other activity during that time frame because the challenge you will have is the patient's going to compensate like crazy. We've had a patient that had to retire from his job, had a total knee replacement, was delivering flowers for his job, was falling repeatedly going up and down steps, was told it was vestibular, came into our office, we screened him. I knew what to look for because of the postural things that are there, and there's also a screening protocol that physical therapists can do if they're educated on it, which is easy to learn, and knew that it was not something that was balance-related. He was able to see Dr. Nedro. The gentleman was walking with a cane. He puts the prism on, wears him for a week, comes into our office, cane is gone. I run a balance screen on him, and he's completely normal. So traditionally, the way we treated an outpatient orthopedics is you will still be working on the soft tissue dysfunction that the patient but there's a lot of other functional balance activity that you can get to. Case in point, when kids have this dysfunction, they'll often be told reciprocal gait up and down steps or stairs is a problem. Or if they have a weakness in a leg that it's because they aren't actively kicking in motor control in that leg. They will get prism, makes our job easier, and now this kid, once we instruct them for normal movement, will do reciprocal gait pattern up and down steps or stairs immediately can start to throw a ball. So the cool part is in the outpatient orthopedic realm, now you get to play just like if you're with an athlete, hey, this is how you throw a ball. Because you'll get a kid or a patient that since that time frame, they have no awareness and they literally will throw balls directly into the floor. You put prism on them or when they're treated with prism and no joke at all, they will turn and throw a ball to you directly as if they've always understood what they're doing. So the challenge you have when you see enough of this You'll actually back off from the traditional treatment of thinking that from the neuro world, you have to support it until you understand that once this fixed, now your true neuro treatment or orthopedic treatment can proceed how you think it. Does that make sense? Could I just add a quick point here? You know, it was a very good explanation, Jeremiah. The Jeremiah is discussing a little different area called visual midline shift syndrome, which was one of our discoveries as well as part of the research. And it talks about how the visual process relates to organization with posture, balance, and movement. And if there's a visual midline shift, it shifts the center of mass. And that affects how the person balances or lines up their body upright against gravity. So Jeremiah discussed how prisms can be used to align the visual midline, which then realigns center of mass for balance and posture. I, I wanted to make one point that the use of prisms can be a very effective means and instrument for reducing risk of fall yeah. and advancing therapy. It in no way takes the place of physical and or occupational therapy. Yeah. But what it does, it maximizes the potential of the person in physical and occupational therapy. So Makes I see people, so much easier for sure. I see patients that frequently come in two, three, five, ten years after PT has been stopped, as well as OT, and they've been told that they've been plateaued. When I give them the prisms, they begin to make progress again, and I refer them back into physical therapy, which, number one, is a waste of money on the part of the insurance companies. It should have been done in the first place. Mm -hmm. But number two, the physical therapists and the OTs report that their potential for working with the patients goes much farther with the prisms than if they didn't have it. So it sounds like when... It sounds like Jeremiah and Dr. Padula that when you have a patient come in specifically for Jeremiah, 
you do the specific screen. Mm -hmm. The screen can identify if the patient has this spatial processing dysfunction, which then would require you as a physical therapist to refer them to, say, an optometrist like Dr. Padula, who would prescribe those pris the prisms. Prisms would be worn, say, for about a week. They'd be rechecked by Dr. Padula, who then would refer them back to the physical therapist. Is that is that a correct statement? Pretty close, yeah. So during that, the only thing that's left off is the person will be tested with the VEP, which is the visually evoked potential. That will know definitively how much prism do they need. So that's the big important piece. And once that's done, then we also, as you treat enough of these patients, know that this person still has plenty of work to do because the prism in some of these patients won't take you from A to B in one set of prism. They may need a couple sets of prism to get there. And after you work in the arena enough, you'll kind of have an idea to realize they had some improvement and the optometrist will let you know, hey, we had some input that was improved, but they aren't where we would like them yet. And then it helps us to understand, can we push this person yet as far as we should? Or if, are they at a point where they're much closer to normal? And after you're used to treating patients, they look completely different in the clinic. So you're pretty darn close on that kind of synopsis of, of how the process. Perfect. Thank you for clarifying that for us, Jeremiah. There are some additional areas that I might just add. I developed an instrument called the Neuroptic, and it's a gait balance instrument, a mat that a person walks on, similar to the gait balance mats that are being sold on the marketplace. But I've applied to it a special algorithm that takes pressure point as well as vector forces, demonstrating a shift in visual midline and center of mass. And it calculates it into the exact power of prism and the axis to be prescribed. Because most of the doctors and clinicians that are getting involved in this area aren't going to spend the next 25 years studying postural alignment, gait, and balance, and the dynamics of gait and balance to really understand whether it's an anterior or posterior shift or really how that's relating to a medial lateral shift. So when this occurs, we can use the Neuroptrek to refine and assess the prisms. There's also another interface, and that's something that we've developed called neurovisual postural therapy. And it's incorporating vision into the relationships of movement, posture, and balance. I have a 50-hour course that I did at the Shepherd Rehabilitation Hospital in Atlanta. And it is online on my website, PadulaInstitute.com. And I've been uh, training physical occupational therapists as well as optometrists in how to provide a specialty area of care to incorporate vision in relationship to posture and movements. And I would say that it's uh, been very effective for the PTs, particularly and OTs. I just received a call today from one PT out in St. Louis who took the course and she's now trying to gain interest from the medical community so that they can advance it for other, other professionals. So there are additional aspects of therapy that I just wanted to bring out that go beyond or collaborate with both neurovisual processing in relationship to physical and occupational therapy. No, that's really, really interesting. And I know we'll dig more into that in just a little bit. But before I get this next question that I have is, you know, in school, in PT school, I kind of remember when we were kind of learning about neuro and we were kind of learning about stroke and even in clinic, kind of about the phenomenon of neglect and pusher syndrome that were kind of separate. And, you know, I'm really curious now that we've kind of really talked about this and finding out how more of a prevalence kind of maybe the spatial visual spatial processing thing is. I'm really curious to, and based on your guys's research and experience is, 
is neglect and pusher syndromes real things or is it more so just an underlying visual spatial processing that perhaps wasn't picked up based on what we knew at the time? That's an excellent question, uh, Brandon. Jeremiah, do you mind if I take this one initially? Absolutely, because it's... Go ahead. Well, if you listen to the terms spatial neglect, pusher syndrome, they're describing the symptom, not the cause. So they've described the symptom and the cause, created probably insurance codes for that, and it really has no means of treatment. Both conditions are a cause of the spatial visual process dysfunction, and both are affecting a distortion in the spatial fields. So I described briefly before one of the other discoveries that I made, and that was called visual midline shift syndrome. And visual midline shift syndrome is when there is a compression of space unilaterally and an expansion of space on the opposite side. If you think of a person that stands before you that has a hemiparesis from a stroke, you'll see in most cases the hemiparetic side showing a compression where the right shoulder is closer to the right hip and the non-affected side shows an elevation of the shoulder and a drop down or an expansion between the hip, pelvis, and the shoulder. That is demonstrating a spatial shift as well as a visual midline shift away from the affected side. Years ago, when I was in the clinic, I began to suspect that when persons were walking and had a tendency to drift or push into one side, that it was, at least in part, a distortion in the visual spatial process. So I began asking patients if they saw the room tilted. And over and over again with stroke patients, they kept saying, no, the floor looks straight, yet they were sitting in their chair tilted. And then the next question I would ask them is, were they straight? And they would say, oh, yes, I'm straight. I had a patient who came into me. He was about 46 years of age, and he had had a stroke on his left side. And he came walking in with a quad cane in his right hand. His right shoulder was higher than the left. The pelvis was pushed down on the right side. Compression on the left side of the body. And when he walked in, instead of bringing the left affected foot forward, he lifted it very high and circumvented in a roundabout way, bringing it forward with each step, with increased weight shift to the right side. When he sat down in the chair, I said, well, you know, how can I help you? He began to laugh, and he said, well, you can straighten the floor out. And I, I began to wonder why nobody else saw that. And then I realized that it was occurring because if the dysfunction occurs in the parietal lobe, they will see it. But if the dysfunction occurs at the level of midbrain or anywhere but the parietal lobe, they feel the imbalance, but that to them seems straight. I then began to explore the idea of utilizing yoked prism, two prisms with the thick end of the prism in the same direction, so that the compression of space happens on one side and the expansion of space happens on the other side to counter the distortion that is represented in their walk, their posture, and the shift in ego center or visual midline. And the moment I did that and placed the base end or thick end of the prism into the affected side, I was having patients with stroke that couldn't weight bear effectively on their affected side immediately start to weight bear on their affected side. And I think I, I shared with you a link to a video, Brandon. I don't know if this is a good time to show it, but it documents and demonstrates the significance of this. So that a pusher syndrome is really nothing more than the affected side pushing into the non-affected side. 
it's a uncompensated state. The spatial neglect is nothing more than a compression of space in one area and an expansion of the other. If you deal with it strictly from a sensory perspective, you will never gain effective treatment for any of those patients. The spatial process is really a more a component of the motor base of support and proprioception than it is of higher sensory process. That's why you've got to use these prisms in conjunction with postural orientation, facilitation of posture upright against gravity, and active organization of dynamic weight shift. And that's the key to rehabilitation. Nice. No, that was great. And yes, I, I did get that video that you sent me before. And after watching it, it was actually pretty startling seeing how much of a struggle he had, really all leaning into the wall and how he's not really consistent with being able to walk. But then once he got that, once he got the glasses on, what a change. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, as we greatly appreciate your support to help us advance healthcare education. We are very happy to announce that we have created a new tool to help develop clinicians into better experts. With that being said, we have created the HET Light Tool, which LIGHT stands for Learning Integrated Towards Expertise. And what we've done is we've taken our first year's worth of episodes with experts in the fields of healthcare and education, and we've taken one golden nugget or theory on expertise and presented it to you in a very easily consumable format so that people can take one lesson or nugget per week and map out and plan how to incorporate it into your clinical and educational practices. And by the end of the year, we think you'll be pleasantly surprised at how far you've progressed towards becoming an expert. To find out more, please check it out at pteducator.com slash H-E-T, which is also available in our show notes. Thank you again all for your continued support. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.